Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week we bring you interviews with event professionals and we help you build your events empire by showing you how to run a business around live events. We've got listeners who run small meetups for their community. We've got people that run large conferences. So we're really focused on anyone who's running events and helping you make money out of them, get attendees, and use it to grow your business. So I'm coming to you today. It's Wednesday, the 15th of May from a rainy Prague. And I want to bring you an interview we recorded beginning of the event podcast with a guy called Steve Monnington. And what we talked about is how to sell your events company. Now, this is a hugely interesting topic for a lot of people. Maybe you've built up a conference or a large group of meetups. Maybe you've even gone as far as doing a trade show or some live events, music events. And maybe you want to think, can I even sell this business? You know, maybe you don't want to keep running it. Maybe you want to pass it on, get someone else to take it over and and obviously make some money. So Steve uh, runs a company called Mayfield Merger Strategies, and he specializes in helping people sell their events company. So hugely interesting episode for anyone running an event to learn how you could maybe even sell your events business. This episode is sponsored by EventsFrame. That's a company I'm a partner of. It's event ticketing done right. If you're using Eventbrite right now, you're probably paying paying close to 4% of every ticket fee. And with EventsFrame, you can run an event for as little as $39 for the whole event. So it connects to PayPal, Braintree, or Stripe. It connects to all your favorite email marketing softwares, really amazing integrations, even with webinars. You can create whatever discount code you want. You can create your own website or you can even embed events frame in your website. So please, if you're a listener of this podcast, I'd really love you to check it out. And please um, send me an email uh, with a subject line podcast. My email is dan at eventsframe.com, D-A-N at eventsframe.com. Put the subject line podcast and I'll give you a special discount code. So again, I really want to thank everyone for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please just tell one person about it. We're growing every month and that's amazing to see and it really kind of makes me feel good about spending all the time because it does take a lot of time to to find guests, to edit the podcast, to focus on getting actionable tips, obviously to do all the graphics and everything else. So if we can keep growing the podcast, it makes us more motivated to keep doing it. So please, if you could tell one person or leave us a review, it would be really amazing and you would have my eternal gratitude. So again, thanks a lot. And here is the interview with Steve. Hi, and welcome to the events podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Steve Monnington, who's uh, based in the UK and from Mayfield Merger Strategies. And they are, from what I can see, effectively a business broker. They do M&A for exhibitions and events. So they operate globally and they work on deals between you know people selling exhibitions and trade shows. So I hope I haven't got that wrong, Steve, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. No, I think you, um, I think you explained that quite well, probably far better than I normally explain it. <laughs> where, where are you located, actually, Steve? I, I know you're in, in London. Uh, in London, in London. Oh, yeah. Great. We got introduced by uh, Stuart Bailey in Hong Kong, uh, who's a mutual acquaintance. Stuart runs a large, uh, well, I know him through, he does a few things, I think, but I know he runs a learning and teaching expo, which is a big education technology uh, exhibition. Yeah. And introduce you. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I was, I, I, I'm coming to this from the point of view, kind of, I've run some, quite a few conferences and, and training events, but kind of on a smaller scale. So I'm, I'm interested, you know, to see a bit more about the larger events and, and what the market is, because I think that's more what, what you deal with. No, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And I think that, um, you know, I've known Stuart for quite some time. And I think 
I think he's a very good example of how the exhibition industry works because um, nobody ever leaves the exhibition and, and events industries. Yeah. They just they just get recycled. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know my my background originally back in 1989 through the mid 90s was working for an exhibition organizer called the Blenheim Group, who grew by acquisition to become the world's largest. We sold it to United News and Media, now UBM, for what was then around about a billion dollars. And everybody everybody basically left and went off and did their own things. But almost all of my peer group from that time are now in very senior positions, still in the exhibition industry or events industry in different countries. So, you know, you, you, you're always coming across people who you've known, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, generally in, in another position. And I think that Stuart's quite a good example to use about what's happening here, because, you know, up until, up until recently, he was working with, with diversified communications in Asia who decided to sell their business. And like many, like many organizers, you know, he uh, he now runs his own business. And at some stage, um, having developed the events that he's got, he will presumably sell those to another another exhi- larger exhibition organizer uh, and see, a, you know, a healthy increase in his bank balance. And, and, and I would say that our clients fall into two categories. Overwhelmingly, it's entrepreneurs like Stuart who have uh, set up their own business. Often they've worked for big exhibition organizers or big event organizers. They've seen what other people can do when they go out on their own. And I think the cash flow characteristics of the industry are helpful um, in that you collect, generally, you collect all of the money before the event takes place. So that allows entrepreneurs to cash flow the development of a business. And most of our clients are entrepreneurs who've done that, who've developed the business to a particular stage. And then either they want to cash out or they want a or they want a partner to take them to the next level of growth or, you know, occasionally they want to retire. I mean, there's lots of reasons why people leave. But that is the lifeblood of the of the exhibition and events in industries. So if you actually look at most of the events that the big organizers like Reed, Clarion, um, Informus, UBM, ITE, Tarsus, Comexposium, all of these people, almost every single event that they run has been acquired um, by uh, from an entrepreneur. Right, that's um, very interesting. Yeah, so you know the the launch ability of these companies uh, of these big companies is is far less than you might think from looking at it um, from from the outside they're quite risk averse they they tend to put a lot of barriers in the way of the their staff launching shows they make them jump through hoops whereas entrepreneurs even though it's their own money tend to be more nimble tend to be more in touch with the um, with the industry and the sectors which they're serving yes so i gave a, a keynote speech at the um, Australian Association of Exhibition Organizers a couple of years ago. And I said that without entrepreneurs, you actually wouldn't have these big organizers um, because they're the ones that create and feed them. And that's why 
the um, that's why the M and A sector is really so buoyant right now because you've got uh, a large number of organisers, some of them private equity backed, who are looking for fast growth, and the fastest way to grow is to acquire something that has already been once, yeah. has already has been launched rather than go through three or four years of you know building something up and having the risk that it's not going to succeed Definitely. so that's so that's what's driving the dynamics of the market great uh, just to jump in at this point just to get some basics down like yeah in terms of terminology because like people seem to use exhibition and trade show interchangeably are, are they different in your mind or do you, do you normally refer just to exhibitions well exhibitions can be trade shows or consumer shows right. um I mean, you know, there are. I think at, at, at the very, at the very basic end of this, you have you have trade shows which are business to business. So your exhibitors are uh, are manufacturers or service providers, and your and your visitors are people who want to buy services from 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 them. Um, you then have a you then have a lot of consumer shows where the where the attendees are the general public. Um, and there are far fewer of those that change hands in our world because right. because they tend not to get scale um, and they tend to be very localized. Um, and, and I imagine the, the sponsors would probably like the exhibitors will probably pay more for a B two B type thing where because yes. just a general the general mechanics of business mean that B two C is generally like more customers and a lower price point. I'd imagine. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. But it's you know they're they're more susceptible to um, to you know weather, to transport strikes, to all sorts of things because you know you go to a B you you go to a B two B show because it takes place once a year. Yeah. You know that's 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 where you go to get ideas to place orders. Yeah, you, you, know, you plan your year around certain events. People do for sure. You know. Absolutely. And, and on a B2C show, people go for a day out and they may decide that they don't want to if the weather's, you know, if the weather's a bit cold or if it's going to be hard to get there. That's so um, so we we don't, um, you know, we, we, we very rarely get involved in in B2C shows. And although they do change hands and there are some B2C organizers, people like Ocean Media, people like um, Upper Street Events, um, River Street events, um, Media 10 runs some consumer shows. Um, most of the action in terms of buying and selling businesses are at the uh, are at the trade show end. That's interesting. Now, what about at the, at the lower end, lower end in terms of attendees, in terms of conferences? Because, for example, I, I can give you like my example. We, we run a lot of uh, conferences focused on education technology, and, mm -hmm. and and one or two events we're running, we're getting more and more exhibitors so even though it's a you know we've got multiple sessions going on you know we could grow that side of it to make it because i mean some of these what i'm getting to some of these exhibitions have kind of a conference element don't they and some are just purely a trade show it's just purely a bunch of, of booths but some of them there is kind of a mix where you can attend sessions as well it depends on the sector yeah. um and the and you know there was a big exhibition on this week in Hanover called Euroblech, which is the main world exhibition for sheet metal working. Yeah, yeah. and this was seventy thousand net square meters of exhibition without a single education session anywhere at all. Right, um, it was like going. It's re really old school. Um, because people come to see machinery, they come to place orders, they don't need to learn about anything. 
Um, you contrast that with some of the events which are run by organizers like Closer Still Media, for example, who run events, pharmacists, for vets, for dentists, and also a number of tech shows where education is absolutely key. Sure. And, and that's where the model is changing. So the model that they run is, a, is quite a disruptive model because if you take, uh, for example, the vet, the veterinary sector, all vets require a, um, a certain number of hours of continuing professional development every year, CPD. And what Closer Still offer is uh, a high level of content in order to fulfill a significant number of those CPD hours. But they do it at almost no cost. So it's either low cost or no cost. Yeah. And as a result of that, all of the vendors, all of that community want to come to that event. As soon as you've got all of that community at that event, then all of the vendors for that sector want to come and sell to them. Yes. So, what, so what you actually create is not an exhibition with a couple of seminars, nor do you create a big conference where people are paying a thousand pounds to attend and are coming out of the odd session to have a look around the small number of sponsors that are there. But you've actually got, you know, four or five um, conference tracks on the show floor where people will come out and there's a real buzz around the exhibition. And what you create is almost a 50-50 conference and exhibition. And that, when, when education is involved, like for technology, like anything in healthcare, um, those are the those are the models that are working now, and those events can legitimately compete with the big events which are run by the associations for those industries. For example, yeah. if somebody if somebody particularly if somebody from the NA, from the National Health Service wants to come to an event, they're not going to be allowed to go to an event that charges a thousand pounds for them to sit in in seminars or you know a um, conference program for three days they will go and they'll pay 50 pounds or 100 pounds and they'll still get the content but they will get to see all of the rest of it definitely i mean a similar the area i know best which is education technologies is similar to how you described it like the, the biggest event i mean the biggest one i know of which is ISTE in, in the u.s which is that's basically a huge trade show and a huge conference there's there's I don't even know how many tracks going a lot, but it's it's a yeah. and that's and it's interesting because teachers have a similar requirement for getting so many hours to at least in the US they have to maintain their teaching certification yeah. state by state and do so much. Uh, some, some, they, it varies. I mean, obviously the Stuart Show, there's Bet in the UK, which is much more of an exhibition with very few sessions, you know, and free and free to attend. Mm. But uh, generally speaking, the education technology ones have a mixed have a you know a mix somewhere down the middle of, of, of exhibitors and, and conference sessions. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I think that's right. And what, what the businesses that sell best, you know, if we bring this back to the acquisition side of things, the businesses that sell best are the ones that engage the community, whatever that yes. may mean. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's actually quite hard to sell a conference business these days, you know, a business which has got, um, you know, 50 conferences a year in different cities, a bit, a bit kind of sausage machine-ish, you yeah. know, people just churning them out and very, very high turnover of delegates from year to year, um, limited number of people with stands and the only people who have stands are sponsoring the event. You know, those, those as a business model 
are are quite hard to sell. Now, is, um, is that because most with an exhibition, most of the revenue is from from your exhibitors, from your sponsors? Yes. Basically? Well, it is. And then you get, you know, if you can get high retention rates from your exhibitors and you can resell on site, uh, resign people on site for the following year, then you get some form of continuity where if you're running a conference of 300 people with 12 sponsors, it's almost like you're starting again every year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we get asked all the time to sell businesses, people's businesses for them. And we generally turn down quite a few more than we take on. And if people come to us with a the old classic conference model, we don't we don't go near them to be honest. Because interesting, because they're, sure. they're really hard to sell. That's very interesting. I mean, the people listening to this, I guess, there's a mix, right? I'd say, like like I said at the beginning, most people would be on the smaller end, I think. But I'm sure, like, have you seen people build a conference to become an exhibition? Like, they've they've got a lot more exhibitors and, and they've grown it to to that kind of level. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Um, you know, most of if we just go back to closer still media again, I don't want this to be about them. But, yeah. you know, a lot of the events that they have created are launches and you have to lead with the education. Um, it's actually quite hard to start with a fully paid conference with a small number of sponsors and build that out into an exhibition. I mean, people have done it. I mean, yeah. I remember that Informa created, you know, the 3G, 3GSM conference, which was massive. And then the association ultimately, ultimately took it back. But that, that started life as a, as a conference and grew into a massive exhibition. So there are, there are quite a few examples that it's got to be in a sector where there are, where there are, uh, where the vendors are, tend to be, tend to be, big brands tend to be very active you know and that you have a you have a very strong community with a hook it's not enough to say you know let's get let's get 300 people on an interesting subject and they'll come for two days and then they'll go off and you know forget about most of what they learned yeah, yeah. the whole the whole point around the continuing professional development and the hours that people need are seem to be the key to building a valuable exhibition stroke conference that's fascinating so do you so the companies you listed like reed and these other large exhibition companies are they do any i mean there's also a bunch of companies that run a lot of conferences like you know like marcus evans and these kind of companies who run now is there any overlap between these or are these are these generally two kind of separate business two separate types of business yeah, they're, they're generally two separate types of business. I mean, you know, there have been companies that run events on boats, um, you know, and, and Mark, Marcus Evans is a, is, a, is a great example of a business that runs a lot of conferences with a very high turnover yes. of, uh, of a churn rate, you know, very high turnover of, 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 uh, of delegates and sponsors. And they have a model and it works. Um you know whether whether people would buy that business today um, is debatable, but they make they make good money. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, IIR um, were the pioneers of that type of big event. Um, Irvin Laidlaw, who who launched IIR many many years ago and sold it to Informa for several hundred million dollars i can't remember exactly how many and iir is still one of the brands of informa in particularly in the middle east yeah. you know and they, they paid an enormous amount of money for that for that business which was a whole collection of smaller um conferences 
Um, but I think that was of its time. And I think, yes. you know, I think if a business like that came up for sale today, Informer wouldn't buy it um, because, you know, they're focused on they're focused on things which are which have a higher degree of stickiness, you know, and repeat, repeat business. So let's say someone's listening to this and they have a, an exhibition which is growing. Like what, what would be their starting point if they were thinking of selling? Obviously speak to you would be the first thing, but, but like what's, <laughs> what's the, uh, what's like, you know, is, can, can we talk a bit about, you know, what the process is and what the, what the kind of typical valuations? I read you had a very interesting article about how much is your exhibition worth. Could you talk a bit about the process and, and what kind of valuations these events are getting? Yeah, so I, th- I think the starting point isn't necessarily to call us. I think the starting point is to decide on on the timing, um, and the timing is absolutely is absolutely critical. And in the past, what we have found is that entrepreneurs tend to hang on um, to their business for too long because they can't bear to sell it uh, with growth left in it. And the and that's the time you get, should be selling it. Yeah, when, exactly. When you know, and you know, the moment it's tapering off, when it's uh, when it's flattened out, when it's starting to decline, when you've got too much competition, is is when it's too late. So people need to look at uh, need to look at that. What we're finding at the moment, though, is because there are so many transactions happening, um, because there's so much money around, um, some people are launching events specifically just to sell them. Yep. So we're, get, we're getting approaches from people who've launched a business, run it for a year, and then expect to get a double-digit multiple and then leave and go and do something else. And that's quite a kind of millennial approach to yep. things. And we have to explain that, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, it's, it must be tough as well because generally, you know, most events, it takes a couple of years to get some momentum because the people are kind of suspicious about a first-year event. You know, from what I've seen, you know, people don't know yeah much about it or anything about it yeah i mean because because you don't know whether it's been accepted by the market you know it hasn't got a proven uh, revenue model um but that doesn't stop people trying to do it so i think i think you know for anybody listening to this the key point is timing um and you know the, the events that sell successfully for uh mm-hmm. for a lot of money tend to be ones which have been created because people feel passionate about that sector, um, because they understand that sector, and because they have created an event that people want, and that it's run for at least three years, and then and then it's you know it's proven itself, it's got a growth profile, and then they can you know they can start to look at either selling it or partnering with somebody and selling a stake in it. We sold years ago. We sold an event called Counterterrorism Expo to Clarion. And the guy who had launched it was a guy called Peter Jones, who runs a company called 19 Events. They run the the main security event in the UK now. And he approached us to say, I've launched this event and I want to invite buyers to the very first edition. And we thought he was mad, but that's what we did. And we said, you know, here's this event. We're selling it. It hasn't run yet. Um, It was so successful um, that we actually had four bidders for it. But the difference between that and, uh, you know, selling 
uh, events, which are normal, normally selling events that are in early stage, is that he was prepared to stay with the business for three or four years. So he sold 60%, I think. And then he sold the rest three years later, and he worked with Clarion to develop the event. So in situations like that, you can sell a little bit earlier. And I guess but he had a track record as well. People knew. He also ha- he had a track record. It was in a sector which was which was growing clearly growing rapidly. He tapped into all of the um, the, the things of the moment around uh, around terrorism, you know, terrorism attacks and so on. But but in general, you know, don't don't think about selling your event until it's run at least three times. And if you do want to make serious money out of it, sell it to somebody while there is still growth left in it. And finding that middle point between the too early and too late is actually quite tricky. Uh, so, so one of the things that we do when people approach us is to advise them that maybe they should wait another year, for example. And what, what are, what's kind of the range of valuations? Is it a multiple typically of profit or of revenue? Or how, are the, how, are, how are these exhibitions typically valued? Um, they're valued as a multiple of earnings before interest and tax and depreciation, what we call EBITDA. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, your profit before tax. I mean, I mean, very few exhibition companies have anything to depreciate, so it's generally, you know, your your, your bottom line profit before yes. tax. It's a multiple of that. We don't see businesses sold on multiples of revenue today. It may be expressed as a multiple of revenue, but actually, it's been worked out. As a ultimately as a, as a as a multiple of profit, I get less hung up on multiples than a lot of people because I want to know what it's a multiple of. Because you know, if you if you sell a business today, I had an example of somebody in Asia who told me that they'd sold an event, they'd sold it themselves, they hadn't worked with a broker, and they'd got a great deal. And they sold their business for a multiple of seven times profit. And I said, well, that's not bad for a small yeah. event. And then I looked at it and it, was, it had run twice. And the following year, it was forecast to grow significantly double in profits. Right. And I said, so, so have you just sold it on last year's profits or are you selling it on next year's profits? And they said, well, no, we just sold it on last year's profits. You know, Rule number one, when you're selling a business that's in early stage, that's high growth, particularly if you've sold in most of the exhibitors for the following year, is to negotiate what's known as an earn out. So, you know, if you take that multiple of seven and your business makes £100,000, then, you know, ostensibly that business you know, the enterprise value of that is seven is seven hundred thousand pounds, seven times a hundred. But if the following year it's you know it looks like it's going to grow to three hundred thousand pounds, then you want that multiple of seven on the growth as well, paid out after the next show. So, you know, you want two point one million pounds for your business, seven times three hundred rather than seven hundred K. So yes. it's a it's about what it's a multiple of rather than you know, what is the absolute multiple. And there are lots of ways of maximizing value by selling, by earnouts, um, by selling a stake now and selling a stake later, which, which often result in a much, much higher multiple 
than the one that appears on the um, you know at, at, at the outset. And um, so I, I I don't I don't place a lot of store in what mul- in what multiple businesses go for. It's more what the overall structure of the deal is and what the growth profile is and when the payments come through and what they ultimately get for that business. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a big variation, but what's a, a typical deal? Does a typical deal that the founder will have to stay on for an earn out for so many years or do people ever just sell the event and walk away? Or how does it, I know, I'm sure there's a big variation, but what, what are the most common ways this goes down? Um, generally, people at the very least will do a, um, will do an, a, a period mm. to, to help integrate um uh these days um if it's an early stage event which depends on the guys who are running it you you generally can't get away with selling 100% and walking away or even selling 100% and leaving after 6 months the the big organizers who buy these events want to continue with the expertise and they want those people to have some risk to have what we call some skin in the game yeah so you know uh, selling 100% is very different from selling 60% now and 40% later or 70% now and 30% later yeah. and actually the big organizers don't mind if they end up paying more money for a business if they've got the founders there working with them on the development for a couple of years, and then they buy out, they they then buy out the minority stake of, for example, thirty percent. If that if that ends up costing them more money than it would to buy a hundred percent at the start, they're perfectly happy with that because what it means is that the business has continued to grow. They have transitioned between these guys and the um, uh, you know and and their own teams. And the business has grown well in the intervening period, so everybody's happy. Right. So, so do typically buyers want to would would a normal deal now that they acquire say sixty percent now and then forty percent based on certain criteria, or do does, do they sometimes just buy a hundred percent straight away and the founder has to stay for the next year or so? Well, they, they, people will buy a hundred percent, and that tends to be more, you know, a big organizer selling, um, you know, a, a, a fairly chunky deal selling to a big organizer. Sure. So, for example, you know, one of the biggest deals of last year was a business called All World, uh, which was the largest privately owned um, organizer in Southeast Asia, and they sold their business for uh, just over three hundred million U.S. dollars to to UBM to UBM Asia and you know that was a very strategic move move for UBM but the guy who ran it who had run it uh, it was a family owned business which he had um, worked with his father and then he ran it himself um they wanted to sell 100% he didn't want to stick around um i think he probably stayed around for about 3 months right. um but the buyer knew the business well um they were into, you know, UBM Asia knew the business well. They were very competitive with it. A lot of integration, which is actually still going on. But in that type of situation where it's a very strategically linked company, uh, business to the, to the business that the purchaser owns and competitive in many areas, it's actually much better to buy 100% and just get on with the job of integrating it um, than it is to acquire 60 or 70% and have the founder still sitting there trying to run the business for you. 
Interesting. Um, and, and does does the acquirer typically buy the like buy the intellectual property, or do they buy the actual company, or does it all depend if it's like if the company's in a different country to where they're based, they don't, they'd rather just take it on? In most cases, people buy the shares of the company. Right. Um, particularly in the UK, if you if you're an entrepreneur selling, you know you want to take advantage of entrepreneurs relief and. You know, you get your first 10 million pounds of gain at 10% rather than at normal right. tax rates. So you can only do that if you're selling the shares and you've owned the shares for a minimum of a year, which is now in yesterday's budget has been increased to two years from April next year. Right. But um, a lot of the buyers prefer to buy the assets. So they prefer to set up a clean company and transfer the assets in. So, I mean, assets, they're all intangible, you know, they're trademarks and databases and, yeah. and, and, and stuff like that. But, and they prefer to do that because they're not inheriting a company with other things in it, with maybe a trading history. Uh, it's easier because, you know, they can sidestep any, li- any past liabilities. So there is a bit of a mismatch between what the purchaser wants and what the seller wants. But generally, um, when we structure a deal, we structure it to be the most tax advantageous deal for the seller. And then the buyer has to, you know, then we work with the buyer to minimize their risk, bearing in mind that structure. But it tends to be for the for smaller businesses, it tends to be uh, it tends to be a share deal. Great. So, so to finish off the sort of business questions, what's the outlook like? Like for anyone listening to this, we're, we're recording this in October 2018. What do you see like for people running events, getting them set up now, 2019, 20, 21? What do you think the outlook is like? Do you think it's going to be easy to sell events? The multiples are going to go up or, or, or what do you think? I don't think multiples are going to go up because they're already at a high, which some people are finding difficult to justify. Um, so, um, you know, uh, multiples in the past, I, whenever anybody used to say to me, what, you know, what's, what's the multiple range I used to say five to seven times. Now it's probably, um, it's probably seven to nine for smaller businesses. Uh, and for, you know, for good big businesses, you see multiples of, um, of 10, 11, 12, all world went for 13, I think it was. Um, but you know, but that's a massive, a massive business. Um, and what's driving that is private equity money. Right. So, um, you know, private, private equity money comes into play in two ways. One, there are a lot of private equity owners of existing exhibition organizers. So Blackstone and Clarion, Charterhouse have a 50% stake in Comexposium. Uh, Onyx uh, owns 65% of Emerald, who are the largest US organizer. Um, Living Bridge own Upper Street Events. Um, Lonsdale owns Ocean Media. You know, there's a lot of private equity ownership around. Right. And they need to grow because because they're not like a read or an informer where they, you know, they'll just continue to trade year after year. They have a time horizon from from buying in to selling out. And in that time horizon, they have to deploy as much capital as possible to develop the business. You know, the easiest way is acquisitions. So they are out there drive. They and, you know, companies like. Blackstone and, uh, and, and and the like have actually driven up multiples because, you know, they are um, they're quite aggressive when it comes to acquisitions. And, you know, their view is 
if they combine on a multiple of nine and exit on a multiple of 12, what's not to like, you know, because they get yeah. they, they get that margin. That makes it more difficult for the trade show organizers like Reed and Informer who don't want to pay nine for a business. You know, they want to pay six or seven or eight. But if they're going to be competitive in a process with the with the uh, private equity owners of businesses, um, then they have to pay higher prices. And that's what's driven multiples up. But do, do you think it's going to continue? Do you think it'll stay the same then? Do you think it's like, is it, yes. is, is it, is it a good outlook? Is it a good outlook yes. now if, if I'm thinking to sell my exhibition in two yes. years? You think, okay, yes. That's great. yes, yes, it is. As long as, as long as private equity are around and, you know, the other area of private equity are uh, the companies that want to get into the business brand new, buy a, buy a yeah. private company as a platform, you know, develop it from there. Um, all of that, all of that, um, all of that money that's around, and that desire to get into the sector because of the strong points of cash flow, and and so on and so on, will will ensure that first of all um, there will be a ready, but there will be ready buyers for good businesses, and secondly that multiples will hold up. Fantastic. Well, look, I know we're getting close to, to time. So that's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm curious, like, obviously, you, you're doing deals all across the world. Do you travel much, like in terms of how you run your business? Do you, do you run it all from your, from your office in London? Or do you actually go out and visit these, visit these no, events? No, we, we have to go out. So I'm off to Indonesia on, on Friday, because uh, I've got a couple of projects out there. Yeah. You know, we, we, I spent I spent up to six weeks at a time in China over a two or three year period to build up our business there and to sell a number of businesses out there and in Southeast Asia. Um, you can't do it sitting in an office in London. It's a you know exhibitions and events are face to face events and selling them and having the relationship with your. Uh, with your client is also a face-to-face event. It's so true. I've, I've noticed just with my own events, with apps events, face-to-face is everything. And it's like the relationships. And I'm sure I probably could run my business without traveling, but it, I don't think it would have grown anywhere near as quickly without, without the, the relationships. Yeah. We have no choice, you know. If we if we if we want to be working globally, we have to be we have to be out there um, doing stuff. So yeah, it involves a lot of travel. Yeah, which which I, I like. You know, I like travel until the point. Certain times it becomes too much. You know, when like recently I've done a lot and I've kind of had enough of it. But then if I go a month or two without traveling, I'll, I'll kind of look forward to it again. You know, so that's how I see it. Well, I think it depends where you're going. You know, I mean, if, if you wake up on a on a on a rainy Tuesday morning in in Xi'an in China and the pollution <laughs> levels are unacceptably high, yeah. uh, you know, then it's probably not the best place to be. Where you know, if if you could if you could be in Dubai or somewhere else instead, so definitely, uh, yeah. Anyway, but look, that that was fascinating, Steve. Thanks very much. I really appreciate your time, and all the best. And thanks very much for the chat. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? Events Frame Event Ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com 